Welcome to another episode of the Ask a CISO podcast, powered by Harangi, Asia's leader in cloud security. Every episode, you get insider tips and insights into current challenges and newest trends in cybersecurity from the world's best experts to help level up your cybersecurity career. Here's your host, Paul Hadji, to introduce today's guest. Right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, just want to welcome uh, Jeremy Sander here. He's a veteran of cloud security practitioner uh, living on the east coast of the United States. Uh, Jeremy is one of the earliest people at uh, Amazon Web Services here in Singapore in 2010 and uh, was the first person covering ASEAN uh, here. He's always been an IT practitioner and ran data centers and backend systems for several SaaS and video game companies in the early part of his career. And Jeremy was previously a guest on the podcast on uh, that Sissy Still podcast where he chatted with Raphael Perrier, uh, VP of Product at Rangi, about the evolution of cloud security in its future. Um, welcome, Jeremy. Uh, glad to have you. Hey, happy to be here again, Paul. Great to talk to you. Yeah, so how, how was your holiday? Like, doing anything exciting? Like, tell us what's new in, in uh, the Washington area. Well, the Washington area, what's new is snow. Uh, that's We've just had a couple of downfalls in the last couple of weeks. And uh, the D.C. area is kind of right at that edge where if you go further north, they have the equipment to deal with snow. If you go further south, there really is no snow. D.C. has no equipment, so snow is always really disruptive in the area. I think the only thing that's been a saving grace this year is that people aren't really commuting. Because otherwise, in, in years past, when there's snow, the commute is, are, is an absolute nightmare. But otherwise, you know, uh, uh, knock on wood, we're getting reports that the Omicron wave is starting to, uh, you know, calm down a little bit. And uh, just hoping that that continues to be the case and that people go get vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Having grown up in D.C., I definitely remember the, the snow madness. And anytime there's like one or two inches, like the school would inevitably be canceled and there'll be like constantly wrecks, like getting traffic. Um, but uh, it was great when I was in uh, uh, middle school and high school because, uh, you know, I knew if it snowed one inch, I wouldn't have to go to school, which was awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Local schools have used all their snow days for the year already. So we'll uh, hopefully we're past the snow for the season, but let's see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully no extra school days tacked on. I do remember that happening during the 96 plus years. We, we talked about a bit before we started uh, recording. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, last time you were on the, the podcast, we kind of talked about the evolution of cloud security in its future. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear yeah. a bit more today about like some of your war stories um, and kind of your experience in the, the cloud realm. Yeah, happy to share. Where do you want to start? Um, so let's kind of like start out with the, the cybersecurity incident that kind of uh, shocked you the most. I think the, the incident that probably shocked me the most, we were working with a company who shall remain nameless. Um, and you know, they were a large scale, rapidly scaling digital organization. Um, they had a, a strategy where they had their primary um, production in one region and their backup in another region, but both were kind of in the same part of the world continentally, right? So in two continents, you know, two different regions, primary, secondary, very good strategy, made a lot of sense, also served their customer base well. And they even tested their failover routines quite regularly. So they knew they could shift from primary to secondary pretty well. All of that great strategy. Where was the problem? So the problem came when they started to roll out more and more features. And one of the things their developers wanted to do was do performance testing. And they wanted to do performance testing, you know, with a lot of freedom around the performance testing that they were doing. 
So what did they do? They knew that primary and secondary regions were monitored quite tightly by the information security teams. So they went to another region in another continent and spun up a cluster of machines to, uh, to, to run some performance tests or to originate the performance tests, I should say. So they were going to use this, you know, third region to basically point traffic at their primary and secondary regions and run a bunch of automated uh, kind of user type testing, right? So what do they do? First thing they do, they go into that third region, they spin up a bunch of virtual machines, they open SSH to the world so that they can access it from where they're sitting, which is you know back home in one of those uh, countries where the primary region is. And they install a bunch of automated testing software on a few different machines, they run their tests. And like many people, they're kind of lazy and don't clean up after themselves. So now performance testing is done, they've got a set of machines or virtual machines in a third region that's not being monitored by InfoSec and they leave those machines out there. And by the way, just like completely out there, still running SSH, still open to the world. <laughs> that's never good. And, <laughs> you know, I think, no, never good. And you know, one of the stats that I, I saw a couple of years ago, and I, I apologize, I can't remember where I saw it anymore, was that basically from the time you launch a new EC2 instance, if you leave ports open to the world, it's, a, it's under five minutes before those ports will start being probed. And to me, that's kind of mind boggling considering that you know there's a massive pool of IP addresses. The IP address allocation is somewhat random, right? Uh, I mean, yes, it's kind of sort of tied to the region, but it's still a relatively random IP address that's gonna pop up, which actually tells you that, you know, in my mind, the, the conclusion is that if you're being probed within five minutes, that means these probes are kind of continuously running and just iterating over the entire pool of IP addresses. And it's really just that it takes five minutes to kind of cycle through and get back there again and, uh, and hit those IP addresses. So these machines are found, let's call it within a few hours. And what ends up happening, you know, SSH is a somewhat strong protocol, but not bulletproof. Um, there are ways to kind of find ways around it. Uh, you know, using a key with the proper permissions is generally a good practice and somewhat safe. But again, there are ways that, you know, machines can be compromised. So one of these machines gets compromised. Of course, there's no internal security between the machines in this virtual cluster in this third region. So boom, these machines are effectively owned. And, you know, this was a relatively smart attack. So sat in there, did not immediately look to kind of utilize that infrastructure. Um, this is a few years ago. So this was kind of before the boom in installing crypto mining stuff. Um, Cause I think that would be the, nowadays, if you, if you have a cluster of virtual machines that gets compromised, that's maybe the first thing that happens. Um, but instead the, you know, the bad actor surveyed where things were within the network, uh, looked at some of the logs, saw that there was outbound traffic going to other regions, kind of sat in there, through a series of steps, was able to actually extract the customer database. So just because of some vulnerable virtual machines or unprotected virtual machines sitting in a region that's unmonitored, effectively the entire customer database gets owned. I mean, that's, that's pretty scary. That was one of the most shocking events. And it came from something that is ultimately like an understandable behavior. Maybe you could say it's undisciplined. Maybe you could say, you know, that's poor cyber hygiene. Um, 
but I'd say this is something that is, you know, pretty common. You know, it's pretty common to want to go do performance testing and to need access to capacity to go do that. It's also not, you know, super strange to open SSH and go, you know, in, go into those machines to install the software that you need. Okay, it's lazy to not clean up after yourself. Yeah. Fine. You know, you can, you can blame the user all you want, but you know, this is not an atypical event and it, it was, you know, pretty shocking. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good story and it kind of gives people the sort of realization around like the fact that people are watching like what you're doing in the cloud, uh, specifically, uh, and waiting for you to, to make mistakes. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, uh, it is real, unfortunately. Um, yep. okay. So, yeah. so on, on to something like a bit more humorous, uh, it sounds like a very, uh, sort of depressing situation for them at the time, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. But like, uh, what, yeah. what's, what's kind of like, um, you know, a story that that's a bit more like kind of funny and, and like, uh, you know, some, some kind of like humorous hindsight around that. Yeah. You know, we worked with a customer a number of years ago and they were still at the early stages of cloud adoption. And let's define early stage by saying, you know, they were below 10% of their infrastructure had shifted over to AWS. They were primarily an AWS uh, customer at the time. They called us in because they couldn't understand what was going on with their environments. They, you know, they had basically one account that they were looking at, one VPC where they were running most of their primary workloads and they were just getting these massive bills and they couldn't understand where it was coming from. And so they called us in, we, we went through the accounts with them we realized, you know, just one of the consistent problems and kind of true in the first example I gave as well, is you, you have to have visibility onto things to, to understand what's out there. And I mean, this, this story is a little bit less of a cybersecurity incident, but we found something like 600,000 assets of storage assets that were completely sitting orphaned. So this was a combination of EBS volumes that were kind of secondary volumes that had been, you know, attached to EC2 instances post-launch. This is a really common problem, right? So before you, if, if you're kind of at the early stages of cloud adoption and you're not at the point where you're really automating the launch and the creation of all your assets, one very common thing is, you know, I start an EC2 instance, I need more disk space. What do I do? I go grab another EBS volume, attach it, mount it, all that good stuff, right? When I go to terminate the EC2 instance, only the root volume, the primary volume is gonna be terminated automatically with the instance. That secondary volume that I attached after launch kind of sits there orphaned. And we see this, you know, again and again and again, right? So between the actual volumes that got orphaned, the snapshots that were taken and the automated snapshots that continued to be taken, they had reached 600,000, you know, storage assets. I don't remember what the exact mix was between volumes and snapshots, but it was huge. And, you know, we, we kind of showed them the data. We showed them, hey, look, and they're like, no, 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 this stuff can't be out there, no way. They go poking. Sure enough, it's another VPC, uh, another, uh, another um, zone, another uh, availability zone, sorry, that they weren't really paying attention to very frequently. And it's all there. And they tell us like, you know, this is a project that was concluded six months ago by people who no longer work here. Mm -hmm. And they had taken care of the EC2 cleanup, but sure enough, none of the storage cleanup. And this was racking up thousands of dollars a month for them. 
and it's like, you know, there, there's kind of two perspectives on this. Both really come back to hygiene in many ways and, and kind of operational discipline. There's the, the, of course, the cost perspective on it, which is don't waste money, right? Like a lot of people get, they hear that, that promising call of cloud that you're going to be able to save so much relative to your own data centers. And I can attest, I, I truly do believe that's true. Coming from, you know, before AWS, I ran uh, data centers for a video game company. We wasted so much money, you know, between infrastructure, spare hardware, you know, floor space, electricity, everything. Like it is crazy expensive to run your own data centers, but cloud is only cheaper if you run it efficiently, you know, and, and you have these, you have these situations. The second is of course the, the cybersecurity view on it, which is, you know, volumes are typically hard to access on their own, but snapshots can absolutely be made public. You know, there's a whole use case around organizations taking snapshots, sharing them, whether that is sharing with a partner, whether that is a data set that's being made available, you know, publicly or, or an open source data set, what have you, there are valid use cases for public snapshots. There's always a risk that, uh, you know, that one little flag gets set incorrectly and then boom, a bunch of data is exposed. And, you know, there have been breaches based on uh, accidentally public snapshots. Thankfully, in this case, it was really just the, the waste of money that was the uh, primary concern for the customer and, and what we were able to ultimately help them with and, you know, stop wasting that money. Yeah, like that, that's, that's pretty interesting. And, and in both cases, like, how do you kind of think they could have avoided those the situations that they, they ended up in? I mean, look, visibility is kind of the main thing, right? If you know that it's out there, you can at least have a human look at it and decide what is this thing? Do I need it? You know, is it still in use? Is it still valid? What have you? But if you don't know it's there, then you, you can easily have problems. So I really say like all of security, whether it's cloud security, whether it's internal, no matter what, if you don't have visibility, you can have zero assurance that you know you know, if it's safe or not. Yeah. And uh, kind of like switching subjects a bit, like, like, what do you think about the Log4J2 vulnerability? And kind of like, yeah, like what's, what's, how does it affect the cloud also? Well, I mean, it affects the cloud insofar as, you know, Java is a major code language used. Um, I think I was looking at the AWS uh, stats that were shown at reInvent, and I think it is the uh, fourth most common code language uh, in their developer surveys. So, you know, you've got a good chunk of, of Java code out there on the cloud. Um, you know, the second thing around that is, do you have understanding about where you have it running and where, and if the places that you have it running are publicly exposed or not? I mean, I think the, the exploits that we saw against Log4j were pretty consistently organizations that had it running on a public facing endpoint. And so, you know, if you don't have that visibility to know, A, this is where I have it, and B, that is or is not a public endpoint, you know, then you're at risk. Um, so its impact on the cloud is, is really kind of, you know, very similar. What I will say in favor of cloud is getting that visibility on cloud is much easier, in my opinion, than in private data centers. You know, the ability to query inventory, to build inventory, uh, in an automated fashion, I think that's that's something that cloud does way better than uh, than you can do in a, in a private data center. Yeah, for sure. And I think in our case, like we we had written a rule 
uh, basically to, to fit into Warden uh, very quickly and, and sort of helps the customers identify quite quickly. And it's, it's much easier to do that, of course, in the cloud um, because it, it is uniform yeah. uh, versus like if you're in an on-prem world, like, you know, people could be using getting many different versions of that, uh, which makes it a lot more complicated yeah. to detect uh, as well. So. So how did you correlate the, let's call it the asset infrastructure with the application infrastructure to know that an endpoint had log4j? Yeah, I think they, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, like the engineering team, like, uh, you know, basically wrote a rule that was detected in the, the infrastructure uh, case there. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think they, they use the infrastructure layer to kind of figure that out. Um, uh, but, uh, definitely, uh, we actually wrote a blog post about this, so I'll, I'll link the blog post okay. on the podcast so, so the listeners can, can, can read there. Um, cool. Yeah. And I, I think like, like in terms of log for J2, um, uh, vulnerability types of thing, like, uh, in, in situations there, like how, how do you think that sort of has evolved? Like obviously initially it came out quite quickly and then it, it evolved a couple of times. There was like multiple vulnerabilities that kind of came out of this. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like what's your opinion on that? So I think the, the real kind of key challenge facing a lot of organizations is staying on top of change as it happens. So one of the things that happens is you, you'll have an incident like log4j and it throws all these cyber teams into like a mad sprint towards remediation. And that can be like, let's say a massive patching exercise, uh, which kind of seems like that's most of what people did relative to log4j is they, you know, they went out and as best they can, they identify everywhere that they have it running. And then they, you know, run patches and they update log4j to, you know, a fixed version that doesn't have this vulnerability in it anymore. It's very easy once you've completed that process. Well, first of all, it's very easy to treat that process as a one-time sprint. And so you'll see a lot of teams, what they do is they kind of like build Excel spreadsheets or they build like a queue of tickets um, to, to go patch various assets, whether that's virtual machines, whether that's application code, what have you, right? They run this sprint, they run the exercise, and then they kind of go away. And they don't really take a lesson away from it, which is like, this stuff can pop up anytime and it's not really sufficient to just be ready to react you need to kind of stay on top of it. And that's where things like, in my mind, the, the kind of the correlation between, let's say, vulnerability management and cloud infrastructure, like that's where that really comes, you know, where those kind of, if you think of this as a Venn diagram, that's where those two circles overlap, right? And you kind of got to be ready for those circles to overlap almost in any way at any time, especially when you're using like a, a lot of open source software that is very common. And, and like, I don't say open source software to say that open source software is less secure. I think in general, it's, it's very secure. I think the risk around open source software is that once something is identified, the, the, the flip side of the fact that it's open source kicks in, which is like, everybody knows about it. And, you know, anybody with a computer can go out and, and try to exploit it. But kind of coming back to what I was saying, I think that the challenge is that like, you have to stay operationally ready and not just kind of let that be a one-time event. So take a lesson from that, understand that, okay, going forward, we need to be ready to jump into a situation anytime when the next big vulnerability kicks in. And so like having, having inventory that goes beyond infrastructure and into, let's say application layer packages, common packages, operation, operating systems, et cetera, like that becomes super valuable. And also then like learning what you can do from a process perspective so that next time it's not such a fire drill. It can be more like a, okay, 
you know, here's an automated way potentially, or here is like a infrastructure as code approach where we're going to like tear down the existing stuff and relaunch new stuff. You know, what can you learn from it and, and uh, do better the next time there's a big vulnerability like this? Because there will be. I think we both know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're only going to continue. And, and like, I mean, cybersecurity, the, the, the good or the bad thing about it, the, depending on how you look at it, is that it's ever changing based upon what's happening in technology, right? It's never going to be a, it'll never be a yep. perfect solution. Uh, for anything, um, and you know, I, I think that's that's the exciting thing about the industry as well. From a, from a, uh, being a participant in it, is that like it's always changing, and there's always yeah. new things to learn and new technology to to sort of um, secure um, and new vulnerabilities to sort of prevent against. Right? That's that's you know what's yeah. interesting and fun about it also. Um, so when, yeah. when we look at 2022, like obviously we're a couple of weeks in at this point. Like, what do you what, what's your take on it? Like, what do you think is going to be some kind of some of the stuff that we'll see and like, what's the, the new things that are going to come yep. out of it? Yeah, there's kind of three things that are on my mind uh, relative to cloud security in particular for 2022. Uh, one is what we just talked about. One is going to be like, what is the next big open source uh, problem? Whether that's a vulnerability, whether that is something like this, um, you know, what we saw with kind of the two intentionally corrupted libraries that broke a lot of downstream stuff. Um, not really a cybersecurity incident, but it shows you kind of the kind of the inherent chaining of stuff in the open source world, right? So um, all of this stuff is connected. It gets into commonly distributed packages. Your organization is probably consuming some of those packages. I know my company is as well, right? Um, so that's one is, is thinking about open source, being ready to react when the next big incident comes around. Um, two is really around identity. I think identity is really starting to um, become front and center in people's minds relative to cloud and, uh, cloud security. We're increasingly hearing people talk about making investments in this space in terms of, you know, kind of core principles, centralizing visibility onto cloud identity, understanding effective access. So kind of that question of who can do what where is something that a lot of organizations can't answer and that's starting to become uh, a real you know sticking point the third thing that i'm personally thinking about quite a lot is kind of the evolutionary state of of the way companies use infrastructure i've been working over the last couple of years i've been you know really lucky to work with a lot of very large-scale uh, fast-growing digital native companies when I talk to them about how they're using cloud and where they're going, and granted, they're very early adopters, right? So they're kind of the leading edge of the curve, if you will. One of the things I hear consistently is reducing their dependency on the compute layer, mm. uh, specifically virtual machines, yeah. right? So they're moving away from virtual machines as much as possible. They're like, look, you know, the, the operational overhead is a pain in the butt. It's an attack surface I don't need. I, I really just need to run my application code. So let me do that. And I'll do that with serverless. I'll do that with minimal container footprint, what have you, right? And so as they move away from kind of the classic VM world, what do they move to? Increasingly, that's microservice architecture that really is like very kind of componentized API-based systems that communicate with each other. And so for me personally, one of the things I'm really thinking about is, well, what's the implication there? You know, what are needs around API security? Uh, and, you know, are people actually designing secure APIs? So that's something that's on my mind. I don't know that that's something that's kind of like commonly thought about out there. And I might be 
a little bit of man on an island with his own thoughts uh, relative to API security, but it is something that I, that's on my mind for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, uh, Arangi, like itself, is, is, is completely serverless, so you have to utilize uh, Lambda and AWS. Um, uh, and yeah, like, I mean, like, uh, we obviously have a services part of our business too, and a lot of the testing that we do is, is on APIs, right? Um, and there's a lot of that stuff that can probably be productized in the long term, which I think is a quite interesting problem to, to solve. And something that's very relevant um, as, as companies like kind of become more dependent on APIs, whether that's like their own or uh, external ones, um, both of which yeah. uh, need, need security. Uh, so um, yeah, I think Absolutely. it's a big business long term. And, and you know, something we constantly hear like from our customers that is a concern for them as well. Um, so yeah, 100% agree on that front. Um, yeah, so like, um, yeah, I think one of the, the sort of interesting topics as well as kind of like the cloud provider vulnerabilities and sort of like research around those, like tell me a bit more uh, about what you think about uh, those. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I'm sure you've you've probably watched this as well and probably some of the uh, listening audience will have as well. I mean, in the last, what, three, four months, we've seen at least three or four kind of major vulnerabilities discovered by third-party research firms. Um, some of them are, you know, cloud security companies themselves who are kind of finding these things. I hope that everybody's going through good responsible disclosure uh, and, and kind of, you know, inform the cloud provider before you publish to the wide community. I know it can be very tempting to kind of make your organization look super great by publishing really quickly and, and uh, very tempting to do that. I, I know you know, every company in the cloud security space is trying to establish themselves as a quote unquote thought leader yeah. or the most innovative in the space. And, you know, to that point, that's where that temptation comes in. But look, we're at the end of the day, we are talking about real customers, real data. Some of that data is probably yours and mine, whether it's, a, you know, a user profile on some service or whether it's the company that we work for, who is a customer or partner of somebody else who's running on one of those clouds. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of data at risk. Um, but I think what's really interesting about it to me is that risks aside, you know, these are massive companies with very good dedicated cybersecurity teams. And the takeaway that I have is kind of twofold. One is that it really is helpful to try to put yourself in attacker's mindset from time to time. You know, security by design is is always good, but it's usually done along the lines of, you know, the, the person who's writing it, how they could think about attacking it or trying to breach it. And when you have an attacker's mindset, it's a little bit more like, I'm not just thinking about it from how, how the design is flawed. I'm thinking about what are all the possible crazy things I could do to try to trigger an unexpected response. Cause like in that unexpected response, you might get something like a little nugget that shows you I could pop command line access or I could fetch the uh, role that the infrastructure is running with, or who knows what, right? But it might give you something, it might give you like, you know, the S3 URL with some data that is, is not discoverable in other ways. So that's one is think about it from the attacker perspective. And two is to your, the point that you raised earlier, which is that cybersecurity is ever evolving. You know, these companies, they've done internal testing on these services before they release them, including by their own cyber teams, right? But new stuff comes out, new methodologies, new attack tools all the time. So, you know, it's not enough to kind of design a service, run your security test and then put it out there. You kind of have to be doing this regularly 
ideally continuously, but in reality, we know that people don't really do continuous security testing most of the time, you know, and most, most companies don't, but at least regularly, whether that's, I don't know, like even quarterly would be an improvement on, I think what's happening. I think it's great that people are discovering these things and, you know, if they're going through responsible disclosure paths, then that's great too. Um, because ultimately like we all want all services to be more secure. Like, I think that's one of the reasons we would go into cybersecurity is because yeah. we, it's not that we, you know, obviously there's money to be made, but we actually do it also because we want stuff to be more secure. Like I said, my data is out there, your data is out there. Like none of us want to, to like use a service just thinking, okay, you know, I, I'm pretty sure this data is going to be public in you know, two weeks, no way. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, uh, I mean, in some, some sadly, in some ways I default assume that. Uh, with a lot of the things that I use, like on my personal perspective, um, just so I can like accept the risk. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, in reality, like, of course, if we can prevent it, we should. And, and like enabling a lot of these companies to do that, I think is an important part of like why I'm interested. And I, I mean, for me also, it's like the, the sort of like changing nature of things, right? It's like what I know today, like it's going to change tomorrow. And like, you know, in five years from now, it'll be a completely different problem. And, and within that, like, we kind of talked about like what you think is going to happen in terms of 2022, but like if we talk about like five years from now, yeah. like, what, are, what do you think are going to be the security problems then? Right. Obviously very hard question, but yeah, <laughs> very hard question. I think a lot of the same stuff will be true in the sense that, you know, what will be even more kind of gravitating towards serverless components towards just running application code, the cloud providers will be taking care of even more for us. You know, right now, for instance, as an example, we do a lot of stuff with uh, a kind of componentized storage, right? Whether that is like database or long-term file storage, you know, just think like S3 and RDS, right? I think over time, the cloud providers are going to make that stuff even easier where you just say like, hey, I have an application that looks like that. And the cloud providers will automatically say, oh, okay, so it looks like you need this kind of storage backend. We'll just go ahead and provision that for you. And boom, it's just magic. So I do think like that continuing abstraction is going to happen. The second thing that I think um, actually kind of comes back to my third point around 2022 is I do think like API security is actually going to be kind of front and center at that point. Because if you look at, you know, kind of the direction that many, many things are going, um, mobile apps, IoT devices, all they are is kind of a small client talking to a backend over an API. And so the nature of data transmission is already moving in that direction pretty heavily, right? And five years from now, that's just going to be more and more the case in my view. Uh, many more services will be integrated with each other. So, you know, just like you log in with Facebook, Google, whatever, when you go around various sites today, I think, you know, you're going to have much more of that kind of third-party services integrated with each other, exchanging data in various ways. And, and again, their APIs are going to be key uh, to that data transmission and that data sharing. So those are, those are things that I think will be kind of consistent for, for the next five years. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, like, I mean, that problem is never going to go away and like the, the different services will have to talk to each other over APIs is what, what we call today it may change uh, in the future in terms of how that, that data is being um, sort of um, uh, exchanged. Um, but very interesting yep. to see like what happens because I mean, I think none of us could have predicted the, I mean, I remember like seeing cloud back in 2008, nine and thinking like, oh, it's going to take so long to adapt. But 
the speed, like, I don't think any of us could have kind of predicted in COVID, of course, which none of, For none, sure. of, none of us also could have predicted kind of accelerate all of that uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. For years, I've been telling myself, oh, now we're right in the middle of the curve, right? So if you think about like kind of the uh, the bell curve of cloud adoption, and you think about kind of like the, the far right being early adopters, and then the big part of the curve is kind of like mainstream, right? For years, I've been telling myself, oh, now we're, we must be hitting mainstream. We must be hitting mainstream, right? It's like cloud's the norm. And then every year it gets bigger and bigger. And it's like, oh, okay, actually, we're still in the growth phase. You have to remind yourself, we're still in the adoption phase. And it's only... I can't remember what the stat was that uh, um, Adam Solipsky shared at reInvent, you know, but it's something between 30 and 40% of workloads are cloud-based at this point. There's still a long way to go and it's just, it's just going to continue. Yeah. And, and that's crazy just to think about, right? And the cloud business is so big already, right? And it's got so much more room to grow. And then yeah. like, that's not even really considering like, that's just people moving, right? Like we also have to consider the growth within yeah. the, the cloud, that 30% itself, right? Which is also exciting. Okay. For sure. So For sure. just to kind of like wrap it up, like maybe, maybe give us some thoughts of, uh, just like about the whole conversation or like, yeah, anything you want to kind of uh, talk about in terms of cloud security yeah. before we end the podcast. Yeah. I just two things. So one is, um, visibility underpins everything. It's like if, if I always tell people like when they ask me like, okay, well crap, where do I start? Like number one, always start with visibility. And I've said it, I don't know how many times I'm probably a little bit sick of saying it, but it's still true. And it'll still be true in five years, right? Like maybe in five years, it won't matter so much on the infrastructure side because that'll be more abstracted away. But at that point, it'll be visibility as to what are the datas and what are the third, uh, what where the third parties that you're interchanging data with? What are the communication paths? Like you have to have visibility onto that stuff. Otherwise you, you have no way of uh, securing it or knowing about it. And then I think the second thing, especially for now and for the coming year, is to really think about correlation between things. Like we talked about Log4j. Well, a place where you're running Log4j is many layers, right? There is a network layer, there's infrastructure, there's operating system application code, et cetera. So as much as you can bring visibility correlated across those layers so that you're ready to react. You don't know like where the problem's gonna be. Right, the next big kind of cybersecurity panic. Will it be infrastructure layer? Will it be application layer? Will it be an operating system problem? And until and you can correlate across those layers, it's hard to react. Yeah, 100% true. And I, I still remember in, like when I was studying networking in college, like one of the basic things that my teacher was sort of like, um, I guess in, ingrating in my brain was like, know your network. And I think that that's still true today, uh, as you mentioned in terms of visibility, right? Like, like you have to know what's out there. Um, and if you don't, then yep. like you're, you're bound to get bitten by the thing that you can't see. Right. Um, which I think is a hundred percent true. Um, yep. well, thanks again for the time, Jeremy, really appreciate you uh, spending the time with us to talk a, a bit about uh, cloud and, and some more stories as well. Um, yeah. So. Happy to. Happy to share. Always a pleasure. Thank you.